Near the end of the Apostle Paul's life, he wrote a letter to a a young pastor named Timothy. And in that letter, uh, one of the things that Paul said is that all Scripture is God-breathed. All scriptures God breathed. This is this is what he says in 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 Second Timothy, chapter three, verses ten through seventeen. This is Paul speaking. He says, "You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra? The persecutions I endured." Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation, through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, among many things, Paul is saying in these verses that one of the ways that God reveals himself is through spoken and written human language. In other words, Paul says that the scripture's ultimate origin is God. What we have when we open up our Bibles is God's very word. But what if it isn't? What if it's been changed? I was having lunch with a, a guy not long ago, and we were, we were talking about these things. And at one point in our conversation, he said to me, he said, hey, Kyle, um, we live in a time where I rarely even trust the news that I watch on the television. Increasingly, when I read an article on the internet, I have no idea whether or not I can trust it. I've given up trusting politicians altogether. He goes on, he says, I've had professors in college, I've had friends that I can't trust. He said, magazine covers are photoshopped, and when I open my social media and and scroll through my Instagram feed, it's, it's one edited photo after another. Nothing's original. And then he said to me, he said, how do you expect me to trust the Bible, something that was written thousands of years ago? Just a casual lunch conversation, you know? You hear what he's asking, though? He's saying, how can I have any confidence that the Bible hasn't been changed over time? How can I have any confidence that the Bible hasn't been changed over time? Maybe that's your question. Maybe it's a friend of yours question, a family member's. It's a great question. It really is. But it's not a new question. It's not a new question. I remember back when I was in college, roughly 2005 or so, a book uh, came out that put this exact question into the cultural spotlight. And in many ways, it's a question that has lingered ever since. The book was called Misquoting Jesus, the story behind who changed the Bible and why. It was written by a guy, a New Testament scholar, in fact, named Bart Ehrman. Maybe you've heard of him, maybe you've read something by him. 
And as you may have figured out by the title, Ehrman in this particular book argues that the Bible has been unquestionably changed, unquestionably changed many times throughout history. And because of that, we can't trust it. We can't trust it. Here's an excerpt just from the introduction. This is Ehrman speaking. He says, we don't actually have the original writings of the New Testament. What we have are copies of these writings made years later, in most cases, many years later. Moreover, none of these copies is completely accurate since the scribes who produced them inadvertently and or intentionally changed them in places. All scribes did this. So rather than actually having the inspired words of the autographs, the originals of the Bible, what we have are error-ridden copies of the autographs. He goes on later and he says, not only do we not have the originals, we don't have the first copies of the originals. And not only do we not have the first copies, we don't have copies of the copies of the originals. And he goes a step further, he says, not only that, do we not have copies of the copies of the copies of the originals. Now, as others have pointed out, Ehrman doesn't know this. He can't know that for sure. But he said it. And he wrote it. And he, he did those things over and over again. And before long, his book, Misquoting Jesus, had become not only a New York Times bestseller, it also became a hot topic in our culture. Has the Bible been changed? I'm excited tonight because we're continuing our series, four questions that we think every college student needs to answer. Of course, like I said last week, these aren't the only four questions we need to answer, but we do think as staff that these are four really important questions because they have a significant impact on our lives. And if you haven't figured out already, the question we're asking and answering tonight is, has the Bible been changed over time? Has it been changed over time? And maybe to add to that, why, why does that question really matter? Does it? Well, stick with me. I think, I think we'll get there. Let me say two quick things up front, though. Two quick disclaimers. One, this sermon is going to be a little bit different than what you're used to hearing here at Veritas. It is admittedly by far the nerdiest sermon that I've ever done and hopefully ever will do here at Veritas. So if this is your first time, uh, for any reason other than you're really excited about this topic, I'm so sorry. Please come back next week. The rest of you have been warned. Two, as much as I would love to talk about the entire Bible tonight, we only have time. Trust me, you only want to listen to me talk about the New Testament. And to do so, I'm going to heavily lean on the scholarship of Dr. Dan Wallace, who is a professor of New Testament studies at Dallas Theological Seminary. And Dr. Wallace isn't just a professor there. He's one of the leading scholars in the world on this stuff. Okay, let's go. Has the Bible been changed? Can we trust it? First, let's do this. Let's address something from that Bart Ehrman quote that I read earlier. Ehrman said that we don't actually have the original writings of the New Testament. Instead, he claims that all we have are copies. And he's right. See, the original New Testament letters, they were written on papyrus. That's what everything was written on back then. Papyri, it was made by taking layers of the stem of a papyrus plant, soaking them in water, pressing them together, then drying them out. And once they were dried, papyri sheets were rubbed with a stone or a shell. They were smoothed out to create a texture 
that was suitable for writing. And because they were written on this kind of organic material, all 27 of the original New Testament letters were gone, most likely, most likely within decades of their original composition. They eventually fell apart or were destroyed some other way. Now, thankfully, we have copies. People made copies of the originals, and that's what we still have today, copies. Now, how do we get those copies? Well, before the invention of the printing press in the ancient world, the only way to copy a book or a document was to do it by hand, one letter, one character at a time. Now, as you can imagine, that was a oftentimes painstakingly slow process. And because copying text was done this way, it wasn't uncommon for scribes, people copying them, to occasionally make alterations to whatever it was that they were copying. Sometimes these alterations were accidental. Sometimes they were, in fact, intentional. We'll come back to that later. For now, you just need to know that text-critical scholars call these scribal alterations variants. Variants. And while we need to admit that it's true that they exist, we also need to ask whether their presence should cause a sense of doubt that we, you and I, can trust the Bible. In other words, how big of a deal is it that these variants, these scribal alterations in the copies of the New Testament that we have, how big of a deal is it that they exist? A few questions, let's ask. What number of variants do we have? What's the nature of these variants? What's at stake because we have them? I warned you, this is going to be really dorky. Okay, first question, what number of variants do we have? How many are there? When Bart Ehrman was promoting his book, Misquoting Jesus, he'd often say this. He'd say, there are more differences in our New Testament manuscripts, there are more differences among our New Testament manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. It's provocative, right? There are more differences among our manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. It's a bold statement. It gets our attention, doesn't it? But guess what? It's right. See, a quick Google search will tell you that there are a little over 138,000 words in the Greek New Testament. 138,000 words in the Greek New Testament. The best estimate amongst New Testament text-critical scholars is that there are as many as 400,000 textual variants. 400,000 differences scribal alterations among the various copies of the New Testament manuscripts that we have. What that means is that on average, there are about three differences per word in the Greek text, which is the original language of the New Testament. So let me summarize. 400,000 variants, 138,000 words. That's what Bart Ehrman wants you to know. That's what he wants you to hear. But here's what he doesn't say. Here's what he doesn't often say. The reason we have so many variants, the reason we have so many alterations in the text is because we have a shocking amount of different New Testament manuscripts to compare to each other. Dan Wallace, he says it like this. He says, we have an abundance of riches when it comes to the number of New Testament manuscripts that we have. And he's only, when he says that, when he says we have an abundance of riches, He's saying that in reference just to the manuscripts that we know about. 
That's because to this day, we're still discovering more. Each year, we're finding new ancient New Testament manuscripts. Now, I say that because it's really important because having more manuscripts, it allows scholars to more accurately determine what was really said. Okay, how many manuscripts do we have? Well, in Greek alone, we have over 5,800. 5,800 Greek manuscripts. The earliest, of course, are fragmentary, but many of these manuscripts are complete, and many cover a substantial amount of the New Testament. 5,800 just in Greek, but that's not all, because the language of the Roman Empire, it eventually went from Greek to Latin. And because of that, we have an additional 10,000 Latin New Testament manuscripts. But again, that's not it, because in addition to Greek and Latin New Testament manuscripts, we also have manuscripts in Coptic, in Syriac, in Armenian, in Georgian, in Gothic, in Arabic. Altogether, that we know of right now, we have between 20,000 and 25,000 handwritten copies of the New Testament in these various languages. Even more than that, we have over one million quotations, enough to almost entirely reproduce the New Testament from church fathers and early teachers of the ancient church. So 20 to 25,000 handwritten copies and over one million quotations of the New Testament, just that we know of. But how does that number of biblical manuscripts and how does that number of quotations, how does that compare to other ancient writings? Let's take a look at a few. Some of the, the better known Roman, ancient Roman authors, most of what we know about ancient Rome comes from three men, Livy, Tacitus, and Suetonius. Of Livy's writings, we have 27 manuscripts. Tacitus, we have three. Suetonius, we have by far the most. We have a little over 200. What about Greek authors? Again, much of what we know about ancient Greece comes from two men, Thucydides and Herodotus. Thucydides, of his writings, we have 20. Herodotus, we have 75. So if you combine all of those surviving manuscripts together, it's less than 400. Less than 400 surviving manuscripts from some of the most prominent ancient Greco-Roman authors in history all of which, all of which are written over 300 years after the death of the original author. Less than 400 written 300 years after the death of the author. Compare that to the 20 to 25,000 New Testament manuscripts that we have, some of which, by the way, were written a century, maybe even decades after the author died. See, why am I saying that? Because no ancient document, nothing, comes even remotely close to the amount of New Testament manuscripts that we have right now. See, here's, here's, here's something I want to say. If, if you're skeptical about what we have in the original New Testament, if you're skeptical that, that uh, what, we, what the New Testament says then to be consistent, you have to be significantly more skeptical when it comes to every other ancient Greco-Roman literary or historical document, which is to say, you should then accept that we know essentially nothing about the world before the printing press. 
See, here's my point. Have you ever heard a friend, have you ever heard a professor, have you ever read an article that, that is criticizing the trustworthiness of ancient Greco-Roman documents? My guess is no. And yet most of us have probably heard that we shouldn't trust our Bibles. It's interesting, isn't it? Skeptics claim that the Bible can't be trusted, but documents with significantly fewer remaining manuscripts can. Why? Doesn't make sense. So yes, on the one hand, Airman's right. Going back to our boy. We know hundreds of thousands of variants in the New Testament text, but only, only because we have an unparalleled amount of manuscripts to work with. And because we have so many, because we have so many manuscripts, scholars are able to wade through all these variants, wade through all these alterations to reconstruct the original wording with a high degree of accuracy. High degree of accuracy. And so as time goes on, we're actually getting closer and closer to the original writings of the New Testament, not further and further away. Second question. What's the nature of the variants that we have? All 400,000 New Testament variants can be broken down into four categories. Four categories. The first is spelling errors. Things like spelling John, J-O-H-N-N, instead of J-O-H-N. Or another common uh, uh, alteration that we see, it's known in Greek as a movable new, which is essentially an N that is placed at the end of certain words when the next word starts with a vowel. We do the same thing in English, a book and apple, right? Every time there's a spelling difference or every time there's an alteration like with involving a movable new in our manuscripts, it counts as a variant. It counts as one of those 400,000 variants. But hear this, none of them, not a single one affects the meaning of anything in the text at all. 70%. 70% of all 400,000 variants fall into this category, spelling errors. Second category these variants fall into is what we say, what we call non-translatable differences. So one of the most common examples in this category is, is the use of a definite article with a proper name. So some manuscripts we have will say the Barnabas and some manuscripts will just say Barnabas. That's a variant, that's an alteration, chalk that up. Word order variants are also common in this category. See, Greek is a highly inflected language, and so word order doesn't affect the meaning of a sentence nearly as much as it does in English. So take, take just a simple sentence like, Jesus loves John. Jesus loves John. In Greek, that sentence can be written 16 different ways without affecting the basic, basic meaning. 16 different ways. Add spelling variations and other non-translatable differences. Jesus loves John can be translated hundreds of different ways. And again, every time these things are done, it counts as a variant. But again, not a single one of the variants in this category affects the meaning of the text whatsoever. So the first two categories put together comprises 99% of all New Testament variants. To be clear, 99% of all variants have no effect whatsoever on the meaning of the text. None. Bart Ehrman doesn't say that in his interviews. Why? Why doesn't he say that? 
My guess is it's not as provocative. Third category. Third category we call meaningful but not viable. Variants that fit into this category. Meaningful but not viable. For example, 1 Thessalonians 2.9. If you open up your Bible, it will read this. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Almost every manuscript that we have says the gospel of God, but one late medieval manuscript says the gospel of Christ. All right, burn it all down, right? Of course it's meaningful in that the, the, it's a different word, but it's not viable because there's no chance that a late medieval manuscript that differs from every other manuscript, most of which are written much earlier, could possibly be the original reading. So it's not viable. Meaningful, different word, but not viable. Can't possibly be the original word. Lastly, fourth category. Fourth category of variance is what we call meaningful and viable. First, let me say this. Less than half of 1%. Less than half of 1% of all New Testament variants fall within this category. Less than half of 1%. They exist. We have to acknowledge that. We need to acknowledge it. Most of these variants, they, they involve just a word, sometimes a phrase. Two, though, two are much larger, 12 verses each, in fact. The first is the larger ending, uh, the longer ending, rather, of the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. And the second is the familiar story of the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 7, verse 53 through, through 8, 11. So right now, if you pulled out your Bible and you went to, to Mark 16.9 or, or John 7.53, you'll most likely have some sort of note saying that the earliest manuscripts do not include these passages. And so because of that, almost all scholars, scholars almost universally agree that these passages were intentional additions by a scribe at some point along the way. That's why you see them in brackets. Now, they don't teach wrong things about God, but they most likely aren't original, and so they're bracketed in your Bibles, they're flagged so that you know they shouldn't be treated as such. Okay, so what's at stake with all of this? What's at stake because of all these variants? Do we lose anything because of them? Interestingly, Back to Airman, the paperback edition, which came out later of misquoting Jesus. There's a Q&A in the very back with, with Airman. Over 400,000 variants in the New Testament text, 138,000 words. What do we lose? Here's what he said. Misquoting Jesus, my book, does not stand at odds with the position that the essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variants in the manuscript edition of the New Testament. The essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variants. In other words, Bart Ehrman, not in his book, not in numerous television interviews he's done, but in a Q&A added by a publisher after the fact, admits that in the end, no orthodox Christian teaching, no essential truth like the deity of Jesus, Jesus' resurrection, his virginal conception, justification by faith, the Trinity, none. None of them are affected in any way 
in any way by the 400,000 variants that we know of in the New Testament manuscripts that we have. All that to say, all that to say, you and I have every reason to trust, every reason to have confidence that when you opened your Bible and look at those words, that it absolutely represents the words as they were originally written by the New Testament authors. You and I can trust our Bibles. Why does it matter? Why does it matter if we can trust our Bibles? Here's why it matters to a, a former Veritas student. Let's, let's watch this video. When I came to college, I did have a lot of questions about the Bible. It made me uncomfortable that it was weird. One of the things I loved about the crossing is like, they like take your questions seriously. Work with you through some of the answers in the middle of a lot of the weirdness. It's like, okay, so here's what some people think, and then to really wrestle with it. I'd say that's when the strangeness started to be more okay. I guess what I started to realize and what I love about the weirdness is I think it makes a lot of sense in our world. So you get a talking serpent that comes in, you know, and it's like, okay, like what's going on here? That doesn't make sense, but what what is interesting is that it fits with our experience of evil. Like, you know, when you somebody you love gets diagnosed with terminal cancer or something like that, it just doesn't make sense to us. And so I think the Bible paints a more accurate picture of the world through the weirdness and the strangeness in a lot of ways. God has used the Bible specifically and the weirdness of the Bible to, to like give me a reason and a purpose behind the mission that I'm called to, like to live through the story and to know my place in it. Stories give us like purpose and meaning and um, so the better story you can find to live out of, like the more fulfilling your life will be. And like the Bible is like the best story I've ever heard. The oldest complete copy of the Gospel of John. It's written around 200 AD. And this particular portion that you're looking at comes from John chapter 1. This is what it says. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. As the music team comes up, you know, Dom, Dom said in, in that video, 
He said the Bible's the best story he's ever heard. The Bible's the best story he's ever heard. Why? Because of who the story is about and more importantly, who it points us to. The Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. Think about that for a second. The eternal, omnipotent, omnipresent, infinitely holy Son of God took on a human nature. Why? He did so so that you and I could know him, so that you and I could have a relationship with him. See, the Bible is the best story that you'll ever hear because it points you to your Savior. So why do we take time to do a sermon like this? Because I want you to know that you can trust your Bible. I want you to read it. I want you to study it. I want you to live it out. Because doing so is going to lead you to Jesus. And in Jesus is life. Amen.